I'm Dr. Matt Winia. And I'm producer Elaine Grant. And this is Hard Call, The Electronic Heart. We have three choices. We can um, let you bleed to death. Let you bleed to death. Let you bleed to death, keep you comfortable while, while it's going on. Or he said we can amputate your leg. Or we could just tie it off and see what happens. And he said, I need to know right now. His chance of being alive in a year is probably 20% if we keep trying to do what we're doing. We keep discovering things and we can continue to do things longer and longer and longer. Um, and we fix one organ, but that just means something else is going to creep in. Because we haven't figured out how to stop death yet. Those guys you just heard? The first is Carl Miller, a man who found himself in a medical dilemma no one ever imagines will happen to them. Next is Larry Allen, a heart failure physician who uses high-tech medicine, including heart transplants, to save lives. The third is his friend, palliative care doc Dan Matlock. He sometimes counsels against what you might call heroic treatments for dying patients. Sometimes these colleagues, these friends, agree Sometimes they don't. These are the kinds of conflicts we're exploring on Hard Call, the kinds of decisions for which there's no right answer, where patients' values, culture, law, ethics, and money often clash. Hard Call sometimes uses dramatizations of real stories experienced by real people facing medical dilemmas on this podcast and on the Hard Call stage in front of a live audience. Whenever possible, we use the voices of actual patients and health professionals. When that's not possible, and to protect privacy, we sometimes use professional actors to play certain parts. But we'll always let you know if you're listening to an actor or a real decision maker. So, you know, before we jump into our story, I just want to make a quick pitch. If you've been listening to Hard Call for the last few weeks, you know we're about to start a new story. So before you forget the derailed story that we just finished, please take a minute and give us a rating and a review of Derailed on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. The more ratings and reviews we receive, the easier it will be for others to find us. Okay, Matt, get us started. Today we're asking, how far would you go to lengthen your life? What if you were facing imminent death and a high-tech treatment offered the chance to live, but it would be very risky? Would you tether yourself to an electrical outlet if it meant you could have more time on this planet? Today on Hard Call, we're going to tell you stories about two patients who face the same high-stakes decision. Every patient is different. For the first patient, the choice was clear and we'll tell you how it worked out. For the second patient, it was a really tough decision. Stay tuned. At the end of this episode, we'll ask you to vote on his hard call. But first, you need to know both of these patients have congestive heart failure, which is really common. Close to 6 million Americans have it, and half of them, 3 million people, will die of it within five years. I was scared to death. I guess that's the best way to describe it. You, 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 you think that's something that happens to somebody else. And when they tell you it's you, then your first fear is that I'm going to die. That's kind of the way it was with me. This is our first patient, Carl Miller. It's midnight. 
Thanksgiving Day, the year 2000. Carl's 54. He's sitting up in the living room watching TV. His second wife, Patty, the love of his life, is in bed. In a few hours, Carl and Patty will dress the turkey and prepare for a dozen of their family to arrive. Patty, who loves to bake, will gather the ingredients for pie. Pumpkin, probably. My, my daughter really loves pumpkin pie, so it was always for my daughter. His daughter, Kelsey, is 10. Carl's son, Corey, is 12. But before any of that can happen, Carl has an attack of angina. It feels like pressure on his heart. He takes nitroglycerin, which has always worked for him before. This time it doesn't. It gets worse, more painful. Carl wakes up Patty. Then an ambulance, sirens, pain. I remember leaving my house. I remember saying to myself, I'll probably never come back. They told my wife later on that day that they couldn't do anything for me. Carl ends up at University Hospital in Denver, the state's big teaching hospital. He doesn't remember anything for a couple of days, but when he wakes up, Patty's in his room. She told me that uh, basically the only choice we had was to have a heart transplant. Sure, maybe scientifically Carl should have realized this kind of a disaster could happen. But in fact, he never imagined he'd need a heart transplant. Not because it wasn't a possibility, but because it was. He'd been trying really, really hard to escape fate. My dad died when he was 47 of a heart attack. If you could make a list of what you shouldn't do to help your heart, my dad probably did most of them. We had a coffee can underneath his kitchen sink full of baking grease. And when we wanted to fry food, we just took a piece of that baking grease, and that's, that's what we did. And so when my dad passed away, I, I, I said to myself, you know, not going to happen to me. And so I was the guy that did everything right. Doctors put in an intra-aortic balloon pump, a device that improves circulation and helps his heart pump more effectively. But you can't have a balloon pump for long. It's this big machine that you're hooked to, and, and it's uh, access through your femoral arteries and your legs. And it basically keeps your heart beating until you can uh, get a heart transplant. But patients with a balloon pump basically can't move. Carl had to lie completely flat. Not only could he not get out of bed, he couldn't roll over or even sit up. It's like being hooked up to a garden hose, and like they told me, we can't kink the hose. We kink the hose, and you'll die. <laughs> you can't kink the hose. Right, yeah. And, uh, and that's what he said. It's like having a garden hose stuck in your leg. It drove Carl crazy. I was angry. I was determined. You have absolutely no control, and I hated that. I just absolutely hated that. You had no control over... Over anything. You just lay there, and people did things to you. And, and that's, that, to me, is a very, very frustrating thing. Because I had always, okay, I'm going to do this to control my life. Carl had been a Division I baseball player in college, a real star. And then he went on to a successful career. Just before his heart attack, he'd been running a branch of a big security company. So you had a lot of people working for you. Yes, you were used to being in charge. Yes. So this was a huge shock. Yes. It was, it was very, very difficult for me. People had to feed me. I had, they had to do everything for me. I think I lost about 60 pounds. But he had good reasons to try to stay alive. His daughter, Kelsey, 
smart and independent like her dad, and his son, Corey, also a star baseball player. In fact, while Carl was flat on his back in the hospital, a baseball coach came to ask if Corey could be on a national traveling team. Carl agreed. Well, later on after I got to the hospital, he told me, he said, yeah, he said, I want to come up and get Corey on the team before you died. <laughs> and, of course, Patty. She has a toughness about her that uh, it's very impressive. I remember her words at some point in the process, we're going to get through this. And I remember vividly those words that she said to me. And she, she's my hero. I mean, she is absolutely my hero. The prescription to get a heart transplant may sound difficult but straightforward. Carl's own heart fails, so he waits for a new heart. He gets one, end of story. But in fact, the path to a heart transplant is rarely easy. There are only about 2,500 hearts available in the U.S. every year. On average, 22 people die every day waiting for a heart. And many, many heart failure patients aren't even eligible. Carl had a couple of things in his favor. He was young, only 55, much older, and you're not as likely to be put on the list. And he didn't have any other illnesses, like diabetes or cancer, that might have given doctors pause or just outright kept him off of the transplant list. He'd also already shown that he'd be a good patient by staying in such good shape and eating well. If he was a drinker, a smoker, or obese, well, those raised questions, too. So Carl waited for a heart. And he waited and waited on his back, watching videos of his kids' ball games on a TV mounted on the ceiling, hooked up to the balloon pump. Three months, no heart. Four months, no heart. Five months. Which was an extremely long time. They kidded me a lot about, I set the record for the longest survivor. And he kept losing weight and becoming more and more frail. Doctors started worrying about whether, if a heart became available, he'd be strong enough to handle the surgery. His transplant surgeons would stop by in the middle of the night at the end of their shifts to say hi. And at one point, they told my family that I probably wasn't going to make it. And uh, and that they ought to say goodbye. But Carl kept hanging on. It was day-to-day, though. And Carl and Patty planned his funeral. I asked him one thing he remembered. <laughs> the music. One of my favorite songs is uh, a song by David Allen Cole. He's a country western singer. You don't have to call me darling, darling. Probably not the kind of song most people would play at a funeral. But at my funeral, that's what we're going to play. <laughs> but you don't have to call me While Carl was fighting to stay alive and simultaneously planning his funeral, an unusual thing was happening. Not too long before Carl wound up in the hospital, doctors in Colorado had implanted a new kind of heart pump into heart failure patients for the first time. It was called an LVAD, a left ventricular assist device. It's electrical, and it's not too much of a stretch to say it turns you into a battery-powered person. A cord comes out of the chest and has to be plugged into a battery pack or a wall outlet all the time. Even today, more than a decade later, the long open heart surgery is risky and the healing time long and often very difficult. But when it works, heart failure patients can feel a lot better. 
Carl first heard about it when these patients came to visit. To Carl, stuck in bed, on the verge of dying, an LVAD sounded great. The idea of relying on a battery or an electrical outlet, well, compared to being stuck on the balloon pump, that seemed like no big deal. The guy who had the very first LVAD in Colorado, he visited me in my room. He said, you got to get yourself one of these. Because he was home, and uh, as the first three guys got LVADs, my room was a meeting place because I couldn't get out of bed. And the doctors, obviously, were, would come in and say, yeah, yeah, this could be, but again, Carl, we don't think the time's right. They were worried that if they tried him on an LVAD, Carl might lose his first place position on the heart transplant list. But finally, with the once athletic Carl down to 140 pounds or so, they changed their tune. They needed to get him off the balloon pump and out of bed. You know, there, there, there was a concern that I would survive the surgery, but there's also concern if I didn't do it that I would survive that either. So Carl gets the LVAD, and it works. He gets out of bed, but he's still in the hospital. And one day, Patty and the kids are visiting. Uh, everybody was in my room, and I just couldn't talk. I just all of a sudden I couldn't talk. I was like, I was talking to you, and then blah, 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 blah. that was really tough on the kids because if you know me, I, I've always been able to talk. It was, and again, it was scary for me because I was very aware of what was going on. I just, I wanted to say your name, and I couldn't, and I couldn't say anything. So here is Carl with his LVAD finally able to get out of bed and start to move around, hopeful. And then he has a stroke. Then, while he's recovering from the stroke and still waiting for that heart, something else happens. And a warning here, some of what's next might not be suitable for younger or more sensitive listeners. If you're squeamish, you might want to skip ahead about 90 seconds. So many months on that balloon pump that garden hose in Carl's leg had weakened his femoral artery. And all of a sudden, one, one night, I could feel all this blood squirting from my leg. And um, my femoral artery, my right leg burst. And they tried hard to get the bleeding stopped, couldn't get the bleeding stopped. Strangely enough, I told you the story about the surgeons coming in to see me so often. They were both there at the time. And uh, actually, I think one of them ruined one of the suits because they, they got a lot of my blood on their suit but they were, as they were trying to get, get the bleeding stop. Finally, they called in the vascular surgeons, and uh, he came in and says, Carl, we have, we have two choices. He said, uh, we can, um, but you'll bleed to death. Let you bleed to death. Let you bleed to death, keep you comfortable while, while it's going on. Or he said, we can amputate your leg. And uh, he said, but if we amputate your leg, they'll probably take you off the transplant list. And he said, or we could just tie it off and see what happens. And he said, I need to know right now. So Carl has to make a terrible choice. And with no time to spare, his leg is pumping blood all over his doctor's suit. And so they can amputate his leg, which might take him off the transplant list. Or they can let him bleed to death and keep him comfortable while it happens. Or they can cut off the main blood supply to his leg and just hope for the best. So uh, obviously I, I, <laughs> I opted for the third choice. And I know they called my wife and I remember I saw her just as I went into surgery. Miraculously, Carl survived. During his time on the balloon pump, 
he had developed good collateral blood supply to his leg. So when they tied off his femoral artery, he didn't die or lose his leg. And even more miraculously, a heart came available about a month later that was a match. So he finally got his transplant. Then came about two months of intense rehab. Today, he occasionally walks with a limp. And because of his stroke, when he's tired, sometimes he has a hard time speaking clearly. But all in all, Carl had a happy ending. Well, except one thing. His first hospital bill arrived in the mail. It was a package the size of an old Sears catalog. $1.1 something million dollars. $1.1 million dollars. And that was just the first bill. We'll deal with the money in a future episode. These days, a lot more people are getting LVADs. Back when Carl got one, they were only used as a bridge to transplantation. Today, you can get them for what's called destination therapy. That's destination as in final destination. You keep the LVAD in you until you die. And people can live longer with an LVAD. Most patients with an LVAD are still alive a year later. And without one, most people with advanced heart failure will be dead in a year. The trouble is, if you're the patient, doctors can't say for certain if you'll be one of the lucky ones or not. So Matt, why don't you describe what an LVAD looks like today? Most LVADs are smaller than a clenched fist, and they weigh less than a pound. There's a picture of one on our website, hardcallshow.org. They look a little like a part you might buy in a plumbing supply shop. Right. It's a metal pump that gets implanted into your chest and attached to your heart. And like we said, you're trailing an electrical cord all the time out of your chest, sometimes plugged into a battery, which these days might last 6 to 12 hours. At night, people still have to plug themselves into a wall outlet. The thing about an LVAD is that for someone who's in the end stages of heart failure, it can feel like a miracle cure. It works fantastically well for some patients. Here's a representative of the University of Colorado Hospital. We're in an operating room while surgeons are cutting open the chest of a patient who's getting an LVAD. I I know another patient who walked the Colfax half marathon on an LVAD, and he stopped at, at City Park halfway through the walk swapped out his batteries and then kept on going and finished the walk. In case you missed that because of the bone saw in the background, he said the patient stopped in the middle of the Colfax half marathon, swapped out his batteries, and then finished. But LVADs are also really high risk. 20% of LVAD patients will have life-threatening bleeding. About 10% will have a disabling stroke because of the LVAD. And the surgery to implant the device is risky. Some patients die on the table, or soon after if they're too weak for the operation. Others survive, but later on the device gets infected, and that's pretty much a death sentence. And eerily, you can die, but the LVAD will keep pumping blood anyway. It can be a very tough death for the family, even for nurses and doctors. So now we'll tell you the second patient's story. We're calling him Max. He also had to decide whether to get an LVAD. Like all stories in medicine, Max's is unique, very different from Carl's. 
We've changed the real patient's name and some other non-essential details to protect privacy. These events took place a little over a year ago. Like Carl, Max has very advanced heart failure, and he's exhausted. I feel like I have a ton of bricks on my chest. (laughs) Here's hardcall actor Robert Michael Sanders playing Max. A visitor has stopped by, the guy who's repaired Max's motorcycle and brought it back to him. He asks how Max is doing. Yesterday we walked to the store and back, and it's only a few blocks away. You know, for some cigarettes for Sheila. Took me damn near half an hour to go one way. And the guys called the other day. Wanted me to come over and play poker. Used to do it every Wednesday night. I haven't seen them since last time I landed in the damn hospital, and that was... How long ago was that, Sheila? Oh, yeah. A couple of months now. A couple of months since I could sleep in a bed. Max has been sleeping upright in an old recliner, as many patients with advanced heart failure do, because if he lies flat, his lungs are swamped with fluid, and he feels like he's suffocating. I lie down, and it's like an elephant stepping on my chest. Can't catch my breath. and I just couldn't make it to poker. I wish I could. Besides, I can't drive anymore, and Sheila lost her damn license again a couple weeks ago. Max lives with his daughter, Sheila. She's his only child. His wife of 40-odd years died two years ago. Sheila, well, she works part-time, doesn't bring home much money, and she drinks too much. She's had several DUIs over the last couple of years. Max retired at 65, traveled with his wife, rode motorcycles, played poker with the guys, a handful of friends he's had since high school. But now, between his wife's death and his illness, he's pretty depressed. He spends most of his time watching TV. But unlike Carl, Max isn't eligible for a heart transplant because he's 72 years old. And as you heard, hearts are usually reserved for younger people. And also not like Carl, Max has some other illnesses. Diabetes, for one. He also smokes, and he likes his evening cocktails. Remember that clip from the beginning of this episode? His chance of being alive in a year is probably... 20% if we keep trying to do what we're doing. That's Dr. Larry Allen, head of the Advanced Heart Failure Team at the University of Colorado Hospital. He's playing Max's cardiologist, live on the hard call stage. Max is running out of patience with being a patient. He won't stay on his diet, and he hates not having salt on his food. And he's thirsty all the time. There was this real young nurse. She said, I shouldn't drink too much water even. That's it. I had enough. Just as he's giving up hope, though, his new cardiologist raises the possibility he could get an LVAD. Finally, I got Sheila to take me to see another new guy. And this fella says, I need an LVAD. Well, what the hell is it? So I'm. It's kind of like an artificial heart, but they explain that Sheila. Or I don't know who. They're going to have to tinker with it every day to keep it from getting infected. And here's a kicker. i got to be plugged into a damn battery or a wall outlet all the time. And there's one more thing. When Carl got his LVAD, he stayed in the hospital. These days, you can go home. But doctors won't even suggest an LVAD unless you have a reliable 24-7 caregiver. 
someone who can be there all the time for at least the first month and often a lot longer. That caregiver has to change batteries, respond to alarms, keep the wound and the equipment sterile, unplug the LVAD by mistake, get the device infected or mismanage the blood thinners. Well, there are a lot of ways to accidentally kill a patient with an LVAD. For Max, that caregiver would have to be Sheila. This is a tough decision. But this fella says, it's my only choice or I'm going to die. Soon. And he says, if it works, and if we do everything just right, I might feel real good. He says, I could sleep in a bed, maybe even ride my motorcycle again. If I can keep my heart battery charged, I don't know. You think it's worth it? Okay, listeners, this is your first hard call. Imagine you are Max. What would you do? Would you want an LVAD or not? Go to our website, hardcallshow.org, and vote. And remember, you're voting as Max, not as yourself. So if you want to learn more about the risks and benefits of LVADs before you vote, there's more detailed information on our website, including some scientific research articles, as well as like newspaper and magazine pieces. There's also a discussion forum on the website where you can defend your vote and interact with hard call listeners from around the world. In the next episode, we'll find out what Max actually did and what happened next. Hard Call is a production of the University of Colorado Center for Bioethics and Humanities. It's produced by me, Elaine Appleton-Grant, and by my co-host, Dr. Matthew Winia. Actor Robert Michael Sanders played Max. Music was composed by Andrew Randall and Chris McClung. We had theatrical assistance from Charles Packard, former executive director of the Aurora Fox Theater in Aurora, Colorado. Special thanks to our Hard Call Humanities Advisory Team, Dr. Abraham Nussbaum and Professors Tess Jones, Philip Joseph, and Lisa Karanen. And finally, Colleen McKelvinen and Drs. Dan Matlock and Larry Allen provided invaluable clinical guidance as we produced Max's story. If you'd like to be the first to know when our next series comes out, please sign up on our mailing list at hardcallshow.org. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Hard Call Show. Next time on Hard Call, The Doctor's Dilemma. I see myself as a consultant. It's your body and your life. And I'm here to just try and help you live the life you want to live. It's, it's a little bit counterculture to have those discussions because our culture and the way we're taught in med school is our job is to prolong life and that's what you do. We call it rocket fuel because basically it really just makes a super sick heart beat as hard as it can to try and make sure that the patient has enough blood flow to all their other organs. That's like taking a horse that's about ready to fall over and pulling out the whip and whipping as hard as you can get you down the road, but eventually you just fall over. I heard one story about uh, somebody went out on a boat and forgot their spare batteries and was racing back against the eight-hour time limit of the batteries. It's a whole new meaning to not being forgetful. 
want something loud enough to wake you up at night if it's, you know, if 